So some good examples of this are God's love. God is a loving God and he has love. And he expects us to love those around him. God is a merciful God. God expects us to have mercy on those around us. Wisdom, etc. Knowledge. And there's a full list of these communicable attributes. These attributes are the ones that we are expected to participate in as the people of God. While we're not called to be like God in his full breadth and power, like some um, cults claim, we're expected to look like God. And this is not a strange thing. We're called, we're created in his image, which we'll talk about in a minute. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Or he created them. Right? We're made in God's image. So we're going to display some of these attributes of God. We're going to look a little bit like God. We are going to participate in the love of God, participate in the love of the Father. We're going to participate in the mercy of God. Now, these categories can be very helpful, but they're not entirely accurate in terms of them being God's alone and not God's. Um, There are some attributes of humanity that are in this incommunicable category that we kind of participate in a little bit, though not nearly to the full extent. Um, For instance, God being unchanging, right? God is an unchanging God, and we're going to look dive into exactly what that means later. But, you know, he is solid. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are changing. But in one sense, we're not. You know, I have been Blake for 33 years. I have not changed who I am. I mean, my person has changed a little bit, but my identity has remained the same. So we're kind of used to that a little bit, right? Um, We can understand that, whereas, you know, we're not changing personalities or something like that. We are also what we call eternal, where God is everlasting. God does not have a beginning or an end, And we do have a beginning, but we do not have an end. So we kind of participate a little bit in God's eternalness. And there's others that... So so really, the incommunicable ones are the ones that we are least like God. Communicable ones are the ones where we can be most like God is really a better way to describe it. So we discussed Genesis 1, 26 and 27, talking about us being made in the image of God. This verse also shows that we are alone and unique in creation, right? We are the only beings that can possess God-like characteristics. We are the only creatures that were made in God's image and who can thus participate in the attributes of God. Now this brings us to an interesting point and an important point about our own identities, right? In order to have a true and proper understanding of who we are, in order to come to a knowledge of ourselves, and that includes our issues and our problems and the things we need to overcome, we have to understand who God is because he is our creator and we are made to be like him. When we dig inside of ourselves, we can only get so far. We have to consult the designer, right? We have to go to the source. When we understand God, our own identity comes into focus, and the purpose of our life becomes clear. And we affirm that the antidote to this world of depression and self-doubt and insecurity is nothing more than having a proper understanding of who God is, and that, of course, that comes with faith and belief and all those, all those things. But we have to start with understanding who God is. So, 
Next, we're going to discuss the names of God. This is what we're going to spend the rest of the night on. Throughout Scripture, we are constantly seeing the names of people and places being descriptors of their character. Okay? And we see this um, in all forms from Peter being named Cephas or the Rock and others throughout Scripture um, where their names have specific meanings and it gives us a clue about their identity, and about their character, right? God is no different. The names that God has been given or been told to us by God in Scripture are descriptors of his attributes and of his character. So when we think about the names of God, there are specific names. There are specific names. But we're looking at these kind of descriptors of God, and they're there are hundreds of them, and I have in your handout, which we'll look at in depth in just a minute, a very small list of these descriptors. And the hard part about this is we are told that all creation gives glory to God. And so all creation and all of the scriptures could, in a sense, be a name of God, be naming God. Because God is an infinite being, so one name or even a set of names is not enough for him, right? He is infinite. There is so much to tell about him, to name him, to describe him as. And the naming is important. God's name is obviously a very important key to our Christian life and to our theology. Matthew 6, 9, the Lord's Prayer begins with pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed specifically is in reference to holiness or to something that is revered and it held in awe. This isn't just something that we think about. This is, it being hallowed is an action word. It's something that is, um, we hold high by our actions and by our words. Exodus 27, this is, In the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this is not just flippant name calling of God, like saying, oh my God, or something like that. While that is important, and we should not do it, it is taking the name of the Lord God in vain, but it's taking the glory of God as something that should be this big, and turns it into something that's this big, or something insignificant that's throwaway, which is not reality. Reality is the name of God is a powerful, a massive force that the whole universe is contained within. These verses show that we are to take reverence in the name of God, his person, and his character. This is to be done in our speech and in our actions, not merely one or the other. Now, yeah, did you have a question? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, there are several descriptive names of God. um, And like I said, there's specific names of God in Scripture, and we have a whole list to go over that later. But in Scripture, there are countless descriptive names. And these descriptive names are based on the world around us, whether that be creation or our human experience. And this is what this one is. This is names, descriptors of God handout that we're going to look at next. So the first group of names, and this is all from systematic theology, the first group of names are based on the creative world. And this is just a small selection. There are hundreds, literally, others that we could look at. But we're going to first look at these descriptor descriptor words. Okay? So the first one we're going to look at is, yeah, the specific names of God. Oh, yeah, the specific names of God, yes. That's what, those, are, those are through uh, in Hebrew specifically. 
Yeah, and we'll get to that in a little bit. We're, we're looking at the one that starts with lion there. You'll see. So we're going to look at, at these, and I, I would like to read the verses. We'll see if, if we are able to. But there's a lot, which is a good thing. And this list should be really helpful for you, not just tonight, but in your personal life as well. In your personal study. So, some descriptors based on the created world. So the first one is God is described as a lion, or he's named a lion. And this is from Isaiah 31.4. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Okay, so God is described here as a lion. And we know that there's lots of other places where God is described as a lion, the lion of Judah, etc. But here, he is literally described as a lion. The funny thing is he's described as a lion opposed to shepherds, which is interesting and leads to a discussion of us being careful about how we talk about God and how we form theology. Because in this passage, God is a lion and shepherds are opposed to him. But that's not a theological statement. This is just talking about how God acts. The next one, we have an eagle. And this is in Deuteronomy 32.11. Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. So we have God being talked about as an eagle flying above, carrying his people. So we had a lion, we have an eagle in Isaiah 53, 7. He moves on to talk about God as a lamb. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened his not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is very a stark contrast to the Isaiah 31 passage we had before. A lion who was roaring and who wasn't scared of shepherds. This is a sheep who doesn't open up its mouth when the shepherds come. So there's, there's some interesting play going on here. And this is in the same book of the Bible, from the same author. <clears throat> and obviously we know that 53 is discussing the Messiah, but it's still God and an important discovery and distinction. In Matthew 23, 37, we have God described as a hen. Not really a godlike creature, but like I said, everything in creation is a descriptor for God because God created everything. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. So we have a picture, this beautiful picture of a mother hen gathering her chicks underneath her wings, protecting them. Again, contrast to the lion or an eagle or a lamb, but something different. Some other part of creation is describing God for us. The next one we have is God described as the sun, and this is in Psalm 84.11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, this list, and I think I'm going to stop there for this part of the list, the creation, is so helpful for us. Because what it tells us about creation is that God has created everything to give us a description of himself. All creation is made not just 
to exist in the world, but creation is, has been created to give glory to God, to describe God to us, to give us a picture of God. God is an infinite being, as we have discussed and talked about. And so, in order for him to communicate to us, he has to use his creation. He has to use human terms. We cannot meet God on his level. That can't happen now and will not happen even at the resurrection because he is infinite. He is just so much bigger, better, etc. So he always comes to our level. Everything in creation reveals something about God. God also uses the human experience to describe himself. And most of these we are very familiar with because this is how we talk about God in our everyday language. Most of the time we pray to the Father, right? We don't say, oh, Yahweh, how I worship you. We say, Father, God, right? This is how we talk about him. A lot of our worship songs come from these passages. The first big one is Isaiah 61.10, the bridegroom. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Right? So we have God clothing his bride, his people, as a bridegroom. The next one, we have God as a father, Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. He is our husband, our partner. He is our authority. He's all these things that are tied up in that word husband. In Deuteronomy 32.6, and this is one that, like I said, we use all the time. We have the word father introduced. Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? God is our father. He is using an example that we as humans can understand to describe himself. Isaiah 33:22, the judge and the king. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. He's using these things that we understand to describe himself. Man of war in Exodus, a builder and a maker in Hebrews 11. In Psalm 23, he's described as a shepherd. In Exodus, he's described as a physician. Now, the other things that God des describes about himself is our emotions the joy, the grief, the anger, love, hatred, these are all human emotions. God, while he has those, he does not experience these the same way we experience them. God does not experience love, anger, joy, grief, hatred, and wrath as we do. Because he is other. He's not the same. So God uses these to describe himself, but it's just a shadow of what he actually is. The other thing is God describes himself as remembering. Do you really think God has to remember things? No, he does not. God is all-knowing. He does not have to remember things because remembering denotes something that you forgot that you have to remember and call into your memory. God's seeing. Does God actually see us? No, he does not have eyes. He is a spiritual being. He does not see us or hear us as we see and hear. God does not smell. He is not a physical being. Does God sit? No. He is a spiritual being. Does God rise? Does he walk? No. 
These are ways that God describes how he is, how he interacts with us using human emotions. Just as next down, furthermore, Scripture speaks of God as if he has a physical body. God does not have a physical body. He is spirit while he exists as the person of Jesus Christ. God is spirit. Well, yeah, but God also does humanize himself a little bit. But when it talks about God's eyes or his eyelids or his ears, it's not actually talking about those. It's talking about our human, what that function is in humanity for God. <clears throat> like the eyelids one. When we look at that, that's in Psalm 11.4. Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. I don't even know what that means. What is this eyelids testing? This is Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Interesting, huh? Okay. His nose, his finger, his heart, his foot. It talks about all these different things that describe God. God obviously doesn't have feet or a heart. But we use this as a descriptor to describe something about God. Now, as I said before, we have to be very careful with how we talk about these things. If we focus on just one of these aspects or descriptions of God, we can get, go down a path that's really dangerous. We must take the whole scripture into consideration. For instance, love. Love, John 3, 16. Or, the, you know, God is love. If we take just love, we get some of the modern church movement. Love wins. You know, why would God do this? Why would God, you know, all these questions. But we have to take love with God's wrath, with God's hatred, with his grief, with his, you know, all the other descriptors that we've been given. If we take God as a lion, and this one is interesting to me because we can form a theology, we can form a cult about God based on the fact that he's called a lion, right? And there's some that probably have. Uh, the Bible calls God a lion, as we read. Who else does the Bible call a lion? Satan. Does that mean something? No, it means nothing at all. Yeah, it's the attribute. And it's not even the full attribute of a lion. It's that specific one that he's talking about in that passage of Scripture. Right? He's not talking about the entirety of a lion comprises the entire character of God. God's also called a lamb. Does that mean that Satan, as a lion, is going to eat God the lamb? No, that is silly and ridiculous. But you can see how easy it is to go down those paths. That is an exaggerated example. But some of them are really easy to go down that path. That's why some of modern worship songs can be really terrible because they go down that path with these songs, with these attributes. They see an attribute, oh, this is great that God's this way. I'm going to write a song about it or write a book about it. And then it's like, but you're missing the whole point here. It's like one of the biggest ones and might get in trouble for it, but when it says, God would leave the 99 just for me, it's like, no, you're missing the whole point. That's not what that song, that's not what that passage of Scripture is about. Because that song totally puts the whole focus of it on the lamb. When the real passage of Scripture puts the whole focus on the shepherd, God. And when, that's why we have to take things in context that we talked about before. Really true with the emotional attributes. This is the most dangerous ones. The emotional attributes. God is love. God is angry. God is wrathful. When we take one out without the others, we get really dangerous theologies. 
all creation in its entirety has been made for the sole purpose of bringing glory and pleasure to God. So, of course, every aspect of his creation is going to reveal his character. Some specific verses that describe that point are Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And Isaiah 6.3. And one called another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All of the earth exists to glorify God. Now, these are the descriptive names of God that we find in creation. There are also specific names of God. And this is in your second handout. Specific names of God. Now, these are very interesting, especially when we talk about how much they're used in the Bible, or in the Old Testament specifically. That's what we're going to be looking at here, because this is the Hebrew names for God. <clears throat> when we look at these names, these are not the names of God like I would say, hey, Eric, or hey, Blake, or hey, this. That's not what these are. These are just like the descriptive names. As I talked about in the beginning, God is infinite and too big for just one name. So when we talk about the name of God, we're not talking about just one name. It's, it's his entire person, his entire being, which obviously is massive and huge. So any teachers, religions, cults that talk about God having a name and this is the name of God that we need to pray... That's not truth. That's not reality. God does not go by one name. God is an infinite being. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Do not fall for anyone who says God has one specific name and we should only pray to that God's name. Because that's you're probably praying to something else other than God at that point. So the first name of God that we're going to talk about is El Shaddai. <clears throat> The simple definition of this is the Lord God Almighty. Some more in-depth discussion. <clears throat> El Shaddai is used in the Old Testament seven times. It's first used in Genesis 17.1. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament... It is translated specifically into Greek, the Almighty. Now, some specific meanings of it. El, that word El there, is another name that is translated as God. Okay, so it's kind of just the Hebrew God. And can be used in conjunction with any word to describe the aspects of God. All right, so some of these that we're going to see, like El Olam and Elohim, have or it's the word God with the descriptor after it, like Almighty God in terms of El Shaddai. <clears throat> There's some nuances to this word in Hebrew. Um, Shaddai, Shad, that word Shad is reference to the breast, you know, your, your inner place or mountain even. And what this is, is talking about God as a nourishing, satisfying, all-sufficient. That word sufficient is important there. Just like a mother with her child. He sustains us. He gives us nourishment. He gives us blessing. That's what we have going on with this word, El Shaddai. There's a few passages here. If you want specific, all of the passages... Uh, you, the best way is to look up either an online resource or Strong's Concordance has all of them listed. So that's El Shaddai. The next word, or the next name of God specific is El Elyon. 
El Elyon, or El Eliane, the Most High God. This name of God is used in the Old Testament 28 times. Most of them, 19 to be specific, are in the Psalms. It's first used in Genesis 14, 18. So again, we have the word God used in conjunction with another word. The word Elion literally means most high. And it is used lots of places in the Old Testament. It expresses sovereignty of God, majesty of God, and his high preeminence. So this is the big God. This is the God that's massive and big and just over everything like the big king almost. El Elyon. There's a few here, and as I said in the other, you can look up more. Some interesting ones, though, and I just want to highlight a couple. That Psalm 2, 4 is important because of what Psalm 2 is about. Psalm 2, 4. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Psalm 78.35 was the one I was look, supposed to be looking at. Adonai is also interesting. <laughs> Thank you. I've been like, what is going on here? Psalm 78.35. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer, their most high God, their redeemed, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. All right, so we have God as this most high God, powerful, powerful being. The next we have is Adonai. Adonai. This word is defined as Lord and Master. In the Bible, this word is used to describe God 434 times. Well, in the Old Testament specifically. Yeah, just the Old Testament. Because these are the Hebrew names. Um, The New Testament does some different things because it doesn't have all these Hebrew nuances. Yes. ESV. The Old Testament, Adonai occurs 434 times, and in Isaiah, there's a lot of references to Adonai, and it occurs the most in Ezekiel. 200 times in Ezekiel alone, and so that's, that's a lot. <laughs> Adonai is first used in Genesis 15 two. In the Septuagint, the Greek word that's translated is kurios, which means Lord or Master, which is a generic Greek word. It's not like a name for God specifically. Whereas in the Old Testament, Adonai is a parallel to Yahweh and Jehovah. Adonai, interestingly, is a plural word. Adon is singular. So here we have an affirmation of Trinitarian theology. Adonai is the plural to Adon, the singular. When we see singular Adon in Scripture, it's usually in reference to a human Lord figure. And in the Old Testament, it is used over 200 times to refer to these men. You know, David or Solomon, etc. <clears throat> Sometimes it is used to refer to God, especially in the Psalms. And many times in the Old Testament and throughout Hebrew and Jewish culture, um, the Jews would use Adonai as a replacement for Yahweh so they did not take the name of the Lord in vain. The direct translation for Adonai is my lords. 
which is interesting, as I said, affirming Trinitarian theology in even the name. Because there are so many, I've just given you a couple, but there are, like I said, 434 times. This word is used a lot in the Old Testament to describe God. It's not the word used most, that's the next one, which is Yahweh. Yahweh literally means Lord or Jehovah. In the Old Testament, Yahweh occurs 6,519 times. This word obviously is used more than any other name of God. Yahweh is first used in Genesis 2-4, which is kind of important because, well, it is important. It's not kind of important. It is important because God is referred to a lot before that, which is another name of God. So Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, an interesting point about this, and this is why I'm bringing this to your attention. Before this, it had been almost exclusively uh, Elohim was the word used for God before this. Then it switches to Yahweh in Genesis 2-4. The interesting thing is this comes at the end of the first creation account. In Genesis, we have several creation accounts, as it were. The first one says, and God said, let there be light. And all these discussions of God saying, having this conversation with himself, God made creation and conversed with himself. You know, it says, like for instance, in Genesis 21, 26, which we already looked at, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So that word for God is Elohim. Then we have it jumping over here. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then stop. These are the generations of heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All right? So we have kind of a separation there. A, a part in the story where God has, begin, has been called a different name. Just an interesting and important tidbit when we talk about who God is and how he begins to reveal himself. <clears throat> kind of a moving forward of the story. Yahweh is the promised name of God. This is the name of God, which is too holy, according to the Jewish tradition, to actually speak. In the Jewish culture, they speak it or, or they spell it, they write it without vowels. Y-H-W-H is what you typically see. It's called to the te- tetragrammaton, the four letters. <clears throat> the tetragrammaton, which is literally just means four letters. That's it. We pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't know the exact pronunciation. I saw something on Facebook a couple weeks ago that said, there's a breath and all that. No, that's all garbage. That's not anything. There's no breath or anything like that. We don't know the pronunciation, and that's okay, because the Jews for so long haven't spoken it. They take the Jewish people take the commandment very seriously. Thou shalt not take of the name of the Lord God in vain. As a result, Adonai is what's typically replaced, and Yahweh or Jehovah is what they say as common usage. There is way too many to list out for Yahweh, so I just gave the first three, but there are over 6,500 names or where Yahweh is the name of God that's given. So most of the time when you see God, it's probably Yahweh. If there was one name, this would be it. But this is not God, as we have talked about. does not just have merely one name, because he is infinite. 
The next name of God is Jehovah Nisi. The Lord my banner, the Lord my miracle. This is only used one time in the entire Bible. Yep, most of these are only used one time. <laughs> yep, only used one time. It is used in Exodus 17:15. So, when it's only used one time, it's important to look at where it is used. Exodus 17:15. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage from 17.8 onward. This is Amalek. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Interesting, huh? That's where we get Jehovah Nisi. That's the only place it's used. Very interesting that that is the description. That is the context. The battle where Moses' hands were lifted up and had to be lifted up as a war banner. So, yes, it is in relation to war. Not something cute or like a signpost, but a war banner. Driving the people on. Huh? Oh yeah, you see the idea all the in all places, but this is the only time where this word is specifically used. Yeah, we see you know you banner over me is love and all those 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 verses, but his name when in reference to God, God being a banner over us is a war banner where he fights for us. And in this case, blots out the name of our enemy or Amalek, the enemy of God here. <laughs> Now, some interesting points on this is in the Septuagint, the Greek translated to the Lord is my refuge, which is another way to describe God. That's why Hebrew to Greek can be tricky sometimes. But it has the connotation of becoming known to him, to people, and and making himself known like in the battle because they won. It was like, yeah, God is victorious here. God is the one who should be made known, not you, Amalek. Gives soldiers a feeling of hope. Gives them a focal point like a war banner. And it's only in this passage. The next, Jehovah Raha or Rawa. The Lord is my shepherd. This obviously comes from Psalm 23. It is used in Psalm 23. You may have heard it, Jehovah Rohi or Jehovah Roe. <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd. This specifically is used only in Psalm 23 here. Uh, there are lots of connotations, though, to God being our shepherd, right? But specifically, it is used in Psalm 23. Now, this word is having to do with the one who feeds his flock, nourishes them, but also that he is a companion or a friend. Uh, Some people translate this, the Lord is my shepherd, to the Lord is my friend. That is another way to think about it, which is interesting in light of Psalm 23, which we'll look at. 
because why not? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We can also think of it as the Lord is my friend, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is Jehovah Raha. The Lord is my shepherd. Next, we have Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And this one, again, is used just one time. So, an important passage, then, to understand why this word was used. I bet you you can guess what it was used in. <clears throat> Exodus fifteen twenty six. This is about the bitter water being made sweet. I'm going to start in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So This is interesting that it came right from the mouth of God. This isn't just a descriptor. This is something that God actually says, you can call me this. Then they came to Elim. That's not part of it. So the Lord that heals is after the bitter water. God makes it sweet, and he just says that he will not put on the people any of the diseases that he put on the Egyptians, which were many. He is the Lord, your healer. Jehovah is the great physician, which we do have in other places, talking about him being a physician, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Psalm. But this is the only place where Jehovah Rapha is listed in Exodus 15, 26. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Again, another that only occurs one time. The Lord is there. This one is in Ezekiel. 48.35. 48.35, yeah. I said 25. 48.35, so this is at the very end of Ezekiel. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time shall be the Lord is there. Oh, that's interesting. This city. Hmm. He's talking about the city in heaven is called The Lord is There. Interesting. And that's the only place this is used. So he names the city a name of God. It's the symbolic name for earthly Jerusalem, for Jerusalem itself. This means that God has not abandoned Jerusalem, leaving it in ruins, but that it will be there for restoration. Interesting. Jehovah Tzikainu. This one's a hard one to pronounce. Jehovah Tzikainu. Um, It occurs two times. This is the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. The two times that are used are both in the book of Jeremiah. 
The first one is in Jeremiah 23, 6. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Oh, I'm going to start at verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, Israel, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The next passage that this is used in is Jeremiah 33, 16, just a few pages over. Jeremiah 33, 16. I'm going to start in verse 14. Again, this is in reference to David and Israel and the coming Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. It's the exact same promise. And then it goes into the covenant with David. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Obviously, Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise, but still, the Lord is our righteousness. Something about David, something about the promise that God made to Israel, to Judah, and to David. <clears throat> the word sikenu means stiff and straight or righteous. The Lord is our straightness, our righteousness. Next one, Jehovah <clears throat> Makadash, something like that. <laughs> Makadash, Makadash Shechem, something like that. This word is the Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord who makes you holy. The Lord who sanctifies you and the Lord who makes you holy. This is only used two times. Makadash. Yeah, the alternate spelling is Makadash, so it's a little, little easier to say. Uh, Exodus 31.13 is Yehovah Makadash. <laughs> Opposite of Jehovah McDonald's, not sanctified. It was funny. <laughs> Exodus 31 13. You and the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. <clears throat> and then he talks about the Lord, them keeping the Sabbath day holy. <clears throat> the next one is in Leviticus 28. Leviticus 28, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father and mother, blah, blah, blah. So, God is the one who sanctifies. It's always, these two places are said in reference to us following the commandments of God, and then God sanctifies us, sets us apart, makes us holy, dedicates us. That's what's going on there. It's the... the Center of power lies in God, not on ourselves. The next one is El Olam. El Olam, the everlasting God. <clears throat> the God of eternity, the God of the universe, the God of the ancient of days. I could not get an account on this one. I apologize. I looked for a long time to find it. But Genesis 21, 33 is the first use of this. So let's look there. Genesis 21, 33. This is the everlasting God. 
Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This is after he made the treaty with Abimelech, after God protects Hagar and Ishmael, and right before God sacrifices Isaac. It's setting up this interesting story where God, Abraham has faith in the everlasting God that will keep his promises. It, Olam means forever, eternity, everlasting, never-ending. It's in Gen- Genesis 21. There's a few others in Jeremiah and Isaiah. The next one is the second largest name for God, Elohim. Elohim. God, judge, and creator. The first time this is used is Genesis 1.1. which is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that point forward until Genesis 2, which we discussed, every time the word God is used, it is this Elohim. This is one of the more generic names of God. It's not the most generic. Adonai is the most generic but this one is not something that's specific, but it does have the word strong and God and fear tied into the word itself. Hebrew has a lot of interesting word pictures. They're a lot more like word pictures than just straight up words like we have. So you have strong God, a God that is to be feared, and a God that is powerful all wrapped up in this word. Like I said, it's used over 2,000 times in the Bible. And the list you can get on Strong's if you would like it. Next word is Kana, the jealous God. This is used six times in the Old Testament. The first is in Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not make for yourself, this is verse 4, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, for that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. Um. So, like we said, when we talk about the attributes of God, if we take just one without the others, we can get in trouble. This is one of those. If we take just this, it can get us in trouble. The fundamental meaning of this relates to marriage and relationships. Um, Israel is, or God is Israel's husband, and he's a jealous God is what this is communicating here. There's a few other passages where this is used, and most of it's in reference to this, this type of thing. God being a jealous God, and Israel being the kind of bad wife and who God wants to bring her back. Jehovah Jireh, another really popular name for God that's used only one time. So I wanted to highlight some of these really popular words yeah, so Jehovah Jireh, yeah, so Elroy is used only one time, and it's in reference to Hagar in Genesis. So the God who provides, this is right after the, the last one we, or which one did we talk about last? Um, Jehovah El Olam, the everlasting God. In Genesis twenty two fourteen. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said today, on the mounts of the Lord it shall be provided. This is a story of Abraham taking Isaac up to be sacrificed as God commanded, and then God provided. The Lord will provide. This is what this is in reference to. This is talking about God being a faithful God, God being a good God, God fulfilling his promises, right? And it's only used here. Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Again, only used one time. Judges 6.24. 
Judges 6, 24. The God of peace. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. All right. Yep. No, that's Joshua. I was like, wait a second. That's the wrong verse. Judges 6.24. This is talking about Gideon. Yeah, I was like, that's not right. Joshua's not supposed to be in that story. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abijirites. The Lord is peace. This is in reference to Gideon and the story of Gideon and how... The interesting thing, though, is this is the... the um, this is before the actual, what he actually did, the actual story of Gideon. This is before he lays the fleece out and gets the sign that he's supposed to, you know, go fight in such a way because the way Gideon fought was very strange and, you know, because he didn't fight with swords, he fought with barley bread and clay pots and those types of things. So this is before that. God is the God of peace. So this is almost like a promise that he is giving to Gideon. Which is very interesting. The next one, this one is used a lot. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So obviously this one has to do with God's power, God's military might. Um, this one is used first in 1 Samuel 1.3. So we wait a long time to hear about the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 1.3. Now this man used to go up year by year to the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. And this is talking about Samuel's father and mother, the Lord of hosts. And that sets the stage for Samuel, God being called the Lord of hosts, because Samuel is where we talk about God defeating the Philistines David's call and the call of David to be king and Goliath and all these wonderful battles that take place where God is the victorious party. The Lord God of armies, of king of heaven and earth is what this one describes. And this one there are, like I said, 285 at least. I list for you a whole bunch because these ones um, a lot of times have to do with battle, have to do with him protecting and guarding so, as we see, there are many names of God throughout Scripture, some specific, some indirect, meaning they're emotional names where they describe who he is. God does not have just one name. God has many names, some specific, and we can use those names. That's fine. That's not out of the question. Um, we can pray to Yahweh, to Adonai, to El Elyon, um, and that is who God is, so he will answer. Do you have any questions about the names of God or comments? But, uh, when he says Lord of hosts, yeah. Hosts, yeah. So he's referring to two things. He's referring to the Lord. Really, it's just translated the Lord. Uh, he asks what the Lord of hosts is referring to. That's the Lord of armies, just armies. It's generic armies. It could be angel armies. It could be earthly armies. It could be both. Yeah, that's a good question. Anything else? All right. Yes, Kevin. <laughs> Why so, I think you missed the part where I talked about that. God has so many names because he is infinite. He's huge. You can't just have one name for him. Yes, so as the story of the Bible is unfolded, his character is revealed piece by piece. So like we saw in, um, in the Genesis storyline, we have Hagar, who calls God a specific name, the God who sees me, and then Abraham calls him the everlasting God, which sets him up 
to call God the God who provides. And God, Abraham, in his mind, knowing that God and in his spirit, knowing that God is the everlasting God who is faithful for all time, then that God comes and says, hey, Abraham, sacrifice your only son. So he has to wrestle with that. And then he says, God is the God who provides. Right? So we have an interesting story playing out with even how the names of God are listed. Very relational. These names are very relational. They're not just, you know, calling him the sun god or the earth god or this. It's, it's God is a God who does something for us, for his people. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will pray. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for being our God who is so much to us, who does so many things for us, for being our wonderful provider, our creator. Give us a wonderful time this week as we think about you, as we dwell on you and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.